we're going to back up a little bit and take another run at Acts chapter 1. Okay? So in your study outline, which you have, actually there are some of the words already provided. It's not a mental slip, but just that's material that we covered last week. And so we're going to just review a few things for the benefit of those who were not uh, with us. And uh, then at some point in time, we will actually record the message uh, when we start going again. Okay. All right. Well, here we go. I was thinking about that. I, it, I, in the study outlines that I do, I, I usually put this kind of thing that I call walk-in. I guess when, when we were taking uh, doing preaching classes long ago when I was in the cemetery, seminary, they told, you know, you, you put together, there was one uh, resource that they used called Basic Pattern Preaching. And uh, so they talked about how you construct a sermon and pieces that go into it, but they talk about an introduction and a conclusion. And I... <clears throat> I, I long ago changed that to walk in and wrap up. Now, you probably won't find it in a book anywhere, but that's just what I tend to do. So here's, here's what the walk-in says. You can read this in the study outline. This study in the book of Acts will have us on a journey of faith that centers around one person, Jesus, and what Luke says for us in mission, vision, strategy issues is key to doing church. Um, today, with a brief view, review from last Sunday, we continue to explore the early days of the church. So, away we go. Now, if that away we go sounds like uh, an old-time uh, television program, then you're old enough to remember uh, that. But if that makes no difference to you, then never mind. Okay. <clears throat> so... Uh, we're still in the beginnings, although we're in this continued kind of thing uh, to try to get a handle on the first chapter of the book of Acts. We're running kind of slow, but that's all right. There's a methodical approach that we're taking. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 1, and we're going to begin at verse 7. <clears throat> We've been here before, but just as a review, now we're going to run it down through verse 14 today, Acts 1. Verse 7, down through 14. Verse 7 says, He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back again in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, 
Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. I will stop there at that point, and uh, let's back up a little bit. First, let's back up to prayer. Okay, join me. Your word is precious to us, Father. It is, uh, it is more than our necessary food. Um, from that word, you give us life. You give, give us information. You give us inspiration. You give us so much by which we can connect with you. And we ask that this morning you'll enable us to have our eyes opened uh, to the wondrous things that your word has for us. Lead us into all truth. Thank you for the privilege of rightly dividing the word of truth. And now let it come alive to us so it will be more than just information, more than just some data that we put in our memory bank but that it will be life and truth that changes us for the greater glory of God. For what you'll do, we'll thank you and give you praise. In the strong name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So, backing up a little bit, <clears throat> Acts 1.8 uh, talked about power that comes uh, from God. He will give us, we will receive this power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. That is that which enables us to accomplish the mission. We talked last week and talked about the mission from Matthew 28. That ought to be a portion of scripture that is very familiar to us uh, as Christian and missionary alliance folk, the Great Commission. <clears throat> and as we mentioned last week, the alliance uh, at their general council uh, just put a, a little different twist on um on that focus in terms of the, the language called all of Jesus for all of the world. And that's a very nicely turned phrase because it talks about the sufficiency of Jesus for the world to which he has called us. Um, and we have the opportunity to be salt and light to that, to that group. The plan we talked about last week in terms of the strategy, kind of a strategic approach, is uh, that we are to be, as John Stumbo, the president of the Alliance, has kind of branded things a little bit when he first came in. He talked about being an Acts 1-8 family, a Christ-centered Acts 1-8 family, so that we are to be about the business of that, not only the Great Commission, but, but the receiving of the power and then being witnesses for Christ. And we said last week that we talked about we talked about how that gets worked out in terms of how we serve in our communities, what we do there, how we network and multiply the uh, the, the work of Christ through that network of, of churches, and that primarily we're there to develop people along the way. So it's in the people development business that we are, in one sense, we're we're in that work. 
<clears throat> we talked briefly about the circles of Acts 1.8 where it says, you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we said that you need to start where you are, in Jerusalem. Start where God has planted you. You bloom where you're planted. This is, this is the growing season. And, and we've enjoyed uh, being able to see a lot of the flowers around us. Some of them we've planted, some of them God planted. And we get to enjoy them and, and watch them. But you bloom where you're planted. Wherever God has put you, that's where you serve. The people you touch may not be the same people that I touch. But God puts you in a geographic spot. He parks you in a, in a house or an apartment or whatever it is that, that is your living situation. And then you, from there, you're to connect with people about you. That's your Jerusalem. We talked about Judea and Samaria in the language of Acts 1.8. Those two are coupled together. If you hadn't noticed that before, in all Judea and Samaria, and then it goes to the end of the earth. And so when you get to Acts chapter 8, you'll find a little more information about what went on in Judea and how they began to spread, and then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. We mentioned last week that the ends of the earth is the last point. The eschaton is the word in Greek, and it talks about the last spot on earth. And that's one of the challenges that we have in our day. With the technology we have, you, you get to places that you just cannot normally physically get to through whatever media or technology we have available to us. And, and even in nations where we call them creative access countries, where you have limited or very restricted access, uh, it, it, it doesn't stop. Airwaves from getting there. It doesn't stop messages from getting in in a variety of other ways, and it becomes a part of the privilege. So our challenge is to complete the task of the Great Commission in order to bring back the king. So that's our goal. And and so when, when Jesus says this message of the kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom will be, will be preached as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So our task is on mission. To get the job done. So any investment that you make in, in, in sharing that message with people around you in your geographic community, in this, in this heavily church, Wilkes-Barre saturated area, there are still people who don't give a rip about God and don't know a whole lot about God other than singing something God Bless America once in a while when they go to a ball game or something. So... We just got to get that word out in any and every way. And so God uses us, parks us there, so we bloom where we're planted. That's all part of the circles. And the circles are are more than just geography. I think they're cross-cultural. I think it can take a number of different forms and looks. So now I want to come to uh, the portion in verse 9. Uh, I, 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 I tried to envision what this would look like. Let's assume that that we're hearing this word uh, for the first time and the story. Assuming you're assume you're one of the disciples, and we won't worry about the fact that there were no women there uh, at that ascension piece. Okay, they were all guys. At least that's what the scriptures indicate. I know there were some people, but anyway, let's let's assume. So they have got. So let let's assume that uh, that you're there, and you get this word and. And uh, you're, 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 you're talking, 
Jesus is talking to us, and suddenly he begins to levitate. He begins to elevate uh, and, 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 and begins to just kind of do this thing going up. And it's not a beam me up, Scotty, kind of thing. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just, however, how, whatever that looked like. And you, I, I could imagine, if, if, I can envision if I was standing there and just, you, you're just talking like this, and all of a sudden your eyes just start to go up. And you watch, like a balloon, you're going, or a kite on a string, you know, just go up and up and up. Pretty much, it's almost like out of sight. It's out of sight. And after a while, you're standing there looking at nothing except sky. And then suddenly, two men in white, obviously intended to be angelic beings, have a message. And we're suddenly caught back to the reality of things. The ascension of Christ is a part of the doctrine of the of the church. It's in the Apostles' Creed. We did that real quick speed read of, from memory of the Apostles' Creed, and it's where it simply says, he ascended into heaven. And so, have you ever thought about what, why, why, what's the difference? What difference does it make that he ascended into heaven? Did he need to ascend, in heaven, ascend to heaven? What's that about? So, I want to talk about a little bit about that. I want you to back up to the Gospel of Luke chapter 24 with me. If you've got a Bible, you can get there fairly quickly. Luke 24, verses 50 to 52. Let me read it. Um, <clears throat> because remember, Luke is the writer of the book of Acts, and he just, you know, they, they kind of linked at the hip. They're hinged together. And verses 50 to 52 puts it this way. When he led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. This is the gospel's version of that ascension. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Now there's no reference in there in the gospel of Luke to the angelic visitors at this point. But you, you have the setting for that ascension. So so here's the question. What did it mean to Christ? What does it mean to Christ to be ascended? So let me give you a, a variety of scriptures, and I don't care how you do this. You can, you can listen to the message another time. On You can write down the scripture reference real quick if you can, if you can write down as quick as I talk uh, to get it down. So here's a couple. Hebrews 1.3 talks about that he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what it meant to Christ. That's one of the things. He has been elevated far above all earthly rule and authority. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. In Ephesians 4.10 says, He is over all and fills the entire universe. He is in all things. In Philippians 2, it says that he has been given a name that is above every night. Every name, this ascension of Christ, in the exaltation of Christ. In Hebrews 1.4, it says he's been declared greater than the angels. We've got angels bearing witness at the ascension of Christ, and they have a message for us. We'll get to that. But, but he is greater than those angels. 
He has become the captain of our salvation, Hebrews 2.10 tells us. Hebrews 6 tells us that he entered heaven as our forerunner. We have a great high priest who has entered into, uh, into heaven, entered into the presence of God. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15.20. He has become the head of the church, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He will reign until he puts all enemies under his feet, according to Hebrews 1.13. Those are all things that are hooked onto this ascension of Christ, what it meant to him, what it means to him. He's crowned with honor and majesty in Revelation 5.12. He waits for the moment, according to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, when he will return to reign over the nations from David's throne in Jerusalem. Now, regardless of all of that stuff, it had a meaning for Christ to be ascended. When he ascended, all of those things that we've just delineated here are things that hook onto this ascended, exalted Christ. But what does it do for me? I hate to, you know, we, we, use, we use the phrase with them. Some people have are with them people, which means W-I-I-F-M. What's in it for me? Okay? What's in it for me? You know, we, we, we want to know, okay, what's, what do I get out of this deal? Okay? So here's what it means to us. If it meant all of that to Christ, here's what it means to us. It means that the work of our salvation is now complete. It's all done. It's all done. There is a remaining chapter to be written, but... It's all done. Our salvation is now complete. The thing, another thing that I love in practical application for us from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, is we have a friend in heaven. Now, um, I know that Pennsylvania took it on a chin a while uh, with their license plate. You know, it says, you've got a friend in PA. You've got a friend. A terrible language, but, but I understand. You can only fit so much on a license plate. So, but I want to tell you, I want to tell you, don't forget this. You have a friend in heaven. You have a friend in heaven. You have one, the scriptures say, he ever lives to intercede for us. What are the things that you're wrestling with or struggling with or going through? What are the things that you deal with day to day in, in work or home or whatever? You have someone in your corner. You have a Savior who ever lives to intercede for us. The ascension means that Christ prays for us in heaven. Romans 8.34 tells us that Christ is now at the right hand of God, interceding for us. 1 John 2 verse 2 adds the encouraging truth that Christ is our advocate, our attorney in heaven. He is our advocate who speaks to the Father in our defense. The enemy comes and accuses us, but we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who represents for us, who, who has our back. He's got our back. So we do not need to fear what the enemy may come or bring uh, bring to us. So you have this, this, this ascension, and while they're looking up, <clears throat> Uh, verse 10 says, while they were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, 
Suddenly two men dressed in white stand beside and men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven I will come back in the same way you have seen him go. Um, probably in another setting, we'll talk a little bit more about that second coming piece. But for now, at least in a thumbnail piece, the language is uh, uh, the language of verse 11 at the end is this same Jesus who has been taken up from you to heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So when the scriptures talk about the blessed hope of that second coming or that return of Christ, uh, these disciples saw him ascend, and those and we will see him return again. This is not something clandestine. This is not something that's snuck in under the radar. This is something that's going to be a lot of fanfare to it. And you're going to see the coming of the Christ. And I don't know. <clears throat> Geograph how, how does that happen? How does that happen? If, if we live on this, this circle, this globe that we call the earth, and he comes again, how is it, how is it that Every eye will see him. How, how will that? And I don't know how it's all going to work. Seems like it's somewhere, somewhere, somebody's sleeping somewhere, you know, around the world. But, but if, however, in the in the miracle of that, every eye will see him. He comes back, and it's and it's not intended to be a surprise. You ought to be able to expect his return. Now, there's a lot of things relating to the second coming that we're not going to take time to delve into today. But it is for us a blessed, precious hope. So when things get discouraging, when your body begins to wear out quicker than you like, when you have too much month left over at the end of the money, when you have all, all those kinds of things that go on in our world that cause you to despair, lift up your heads because your redemption Draws nigh, and and and, and uh, it is intended for us to be a hope, and it's not just some kind of pie in the sky thing that, that, that you Christians believe because you because you really don't understand the realities of life. No, it's the realities of life that give us that need for looking ahead to what to what God is going to do because this is not the last chapter. This is not the end of the story. We know how it turns out, and that's the hope that we have. And, and um, anyway, so my question is simply this. What are you watching for? What are you watching for? Now, it's not what are you waiting for. Uh, you could say that, too. You're waiting for the return of the Lord. But what are you watching for? In all the stuff that goes on around in the world, we, we watch a lot of things. Uh, I I was uh, waiting for our daughter and son-in-law to come in last night, and so uh, I, I, I was watching uh, some uh, high school volleyball matches that were going on at Penn State. Actually, they were already done, but I got to watch them, uh, and I didn't know the outcome. I didn't really care, except that the one team, the one team on AAA, was from North Allegheny, which is where my my granddaughter just graduated from on Friday night. So I knew that was, I knew they were going to be competing. 
But so I watch that. I watch that. There can be a lot of things that you can choose to watch. But what are you watching for? I, are you, are we living as if Christ is never going to come back and this is as good as it gets? I hope not. Because we've got to be mindful that this is, this is not the end of things right now. There's a better day coming. There's a better end coming. And so that's involving um, that return of Christ. So what are we watching for? Watch for his return. Now I want to take a little different turn as we look into verse 12. And I want to look at the work of the church. If I were to ask you, what is the church supposed to be doing? Some, depending on who you talk to, would say, well, they need to be doing community work. They need to be helping people with material needs and housing and clothing, and they need to be providing food to people. Uh, some, some churches embrace that, and, and, and uh, you can call it social gospel if you want, but whatever it is, it, it's just a, 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 the gospel with, with shoes, with feet to it. You know? And that's good. That's okay. Because the scriptures do call us to care for the needs of people about us without question. But it's more than that. If the church ever reduces itself to simply doing the things that social agencies do, they've missed something. They've missed what they are to be about. It's all of Jesus for all of the world. It's not just caring for the clothing and need and that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's being able to convey a message of life that transforms people, that allows them to live with hope, that allows them to live with the help of the Holy Spirit living in them. A look at the work of the church. And I, I find it fascinating when they return from Jerusalem, they, this, from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk. That, that's not real far. The Jewish people, in their, in their zeal to maintain the Sabbath, said, well, you can walk a little bit. Not real far. About a thousand yards. That's the best you can do on the Sabbath day. They didn't have that far to walk. They didn't have that far to go. So it was the, it was, so they, they, the Sabbath days walked in the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying and that kind of thing. And then verse 14 talks about they all joined together constantly in prayer. Now, uh, we'll come back to that in just a minute, but let me make these observations. I think the study notes put it this way. In a quote by Charles Spurgeon, a great British preacher, generation... Generation God. I love the language of this quote. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. I love that. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles, the muscle of omnipotence. Now, uh, I'll give you a chance to show off your, your biceps if you want. Uh, on second thought, never, never mind. There ain't much to show off. But the point is that what you do in terms of your, your strength of your arm or your muscle, make a muscle, you know, that kind of thing, requires the movement of a number of other parts. It, it requires a message being sent from here, somewhere up in here, down through so that it says, okay, raise your arm up. Okay. And, and if you were to experience a stroke, it can affect the ability of the messages to get sent out, and nerves are affected. And so there are some people 
who, who just cannot, at their own choosing or will, make that make a muscle. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. When there is no prayer, no message is sent to move the muscle of omnipotence. Why? We can describe, we can characterize a church by many different things. And, and I've done, this is the fourth transitional ministry that I've had opportunity to do. In every one of them, I keep, I almost feel like I'm one note Johnny. There's a book on the back table there that talks about restored power. And the forgotten power of the church is in prayer. We, we do all kinds of things. We can, we can have wonderful music. You can have great eats after a service. You can be friendly people and say hello. You can try to encourage people to come, that kind of thing. But my friends, if we're not getting at the work of the church, which is prayer, that we're, we're, we're trying to accomplish what one person would say is the work of God in the arm of the flesh. And you can, you, can, you can do all of that, the other stuff, but prayer is an important piece. It's fascinating to me and a good reminder. And, and uh, a number of years ago, I uh, went down to Tacoa Falls College for what began as what they called the College of Prayer. And the keynote guy was a fellow by the name of Armand Gesswein, a great gift to the church, who, who discovered... The, the the centrality of prayer and the power of prayer in his own ministry, and so it, it, and a, a litany of books that had just come out from him is very helpful. But I, I I think he may have made this statement that the Christian church was not born in a preaching service but in a prayer meeting. The Christian church was not born was born not in a preaching service but a prayer meeting. Um, you know, we can get together on Sundays and you can have somebody come in and preach, a guy like me or a guest speaker or whatever it may be. But you know, the life of the church is really not so much what happens on Sunday morning. It may be more what happens on the gathering times when the church is at prayer. Now, maybe you can accommodate and, and work pieces where the church it gathers on Sunday and prayer is an important focus and we, we probably can improve in that area and, and probably need to be a little more intentional that kind of thing. But sometimes, at least traditionally, when you have a midweek prayer point, sometimes that's the weakest service of the church in the week instead of the most powerful place of service and ministry. S.D. Gordon, uh, for, founder eventually of, of Gordon Conwell Seminary, says we can do many things once we have prayed. Once we have prayed, but we can do nothing until we have prayed. We can do nothing until we have prayed, and it, and uh, we may designate and say Wednesday is prayer meeting night, and and it just gives you the opportunity to get. Now I know Wednesday may not work for everybody, but let me ask you this: if Wednesday doesn't work. When are you gathering for prayer? With whom are you gathering for prayer? 
And if you're connecting with a few other people, that's prayer meeting. That's a prayer meeting. And it may, it did, the, the geography of when it happens is not so critical. But that it happens is key. We talk about core values of the alliance, a number of them. I've already talked about this one before, where it says prayer is the primary work of the people of God. That's one of our core values. That's number two on their list. They said first one is lost people matter to God. He wants them found. Second one is prayer is the primary work of the people of God. And I'm not going to argue about which one's more important, but the point is this. It's got to become a part of our core value. And if it isn't existent in the history, in the ministry of the church, in some capacity, in some way, then, then we're just we're just playing church. And that's not going to help us. That's not going to help us grow. Not going to help us get to the preferred future God has for us. I don't care if it's Wilkes-Barre or Bloomsburg or, or Lewistown or Williamsport. doesn't make a difference where the geography is. Prayer is still a key piece. And that is the work of the church, verses 12 through 14. I want to look further, however, at, uh, at the groups at work. And this I thought was kind of fascinating as I just started digging down in. In verses 13... When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room and they were staying. Those present were. And it gives you the litany of the disciples who were there. And then you get this other little window in verse 14. Uh, Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brother. Let me let me pull that apart for a few minutes. Just I found it fascinating. You have the eleven remaining apostles. We know that Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ, goes out hangs himself. So they have this vacancy. We'll deal with the vacancy issue eventually in the first chapter. Uh, now, these, these 11 weren't bad men. They, they, but they probably weren't high on most people's list for movers and shakers. You know, they're fishermen. They're just kind of burlap characters. Uh, yet, these guys would go on to change the world, and it has remained changed to this very day. And that reminds me that God can do incredible things through unlikely people. And I, you know, you say, "Well, I'm not very educated about this, or I'm not educated. I'm very knowledgeable of the Bible." You know, it doesn't. It doesn't make a difference that you're you're a walking encyclopedia of Bible knowledge. It's what are you doing with the truth God has given to you? What are you doing with it? Even that one thing. What one thing will you pull out of this message today in terms of the message uh, maybe on prayer? And maybe you'll say, boy, I really need to take that aspect seriously. I I need to get that nerve going to move the omnipotence of God. When you stop and think about that, you could be the difference in tipping things over at Wilkes-Barre, at at City Light Church. You could be the difference. What would happen if if a couple additional people began to take seriously this thing about prayer and they got on their face before God and they started bringing people before God, people that he's planted with in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and, and even if you pray for the world, I pick on Algeria, I, whatever. What, what difference would it make if you began to take seriously this issue of prayer? And, and the prospect of that moving the muscle of God, muscle of omnipotence. 
So you have these 11 remaining disciples. You also have Mary and the other women. Now I want you to back up to the Gospel of Luke again. I'm, uh, uh, I'm just going to do that. I'll get back to Luke, Luke chapter 8 and verses 1 through 3. Uh, and uh, so here, here, here we, after Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news in the kingdom of God, the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, if you've ever doubted where the real wealth of the world lies, this verse answers that. Well, at least it does, in the sense that these gals, these women, supported the ministry of Jesus and likely disciples as well, in order for them to do that. So it's, it's fascinating to me that these are among, now, in, in Acts, it doesn't give all of those names, but likely those are part of that group of people. And this, in this particular portion of Scripture, this is the last mention, verse 14, of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the Scriptures. This is the last time you'll hear about her. You don't find here Mary being the person to whom people are praying. Yeah. You find her being part of that prayer group uh, in ministry and support. And, and we don't hear anything further. We assume that she passes on, and uh, there's no assumption of Mary. Uh, it's delineated in the scripture. I'm not, I'm not trying to be unkind to uh, other faith understanding of that, but, but I'm just going by the word. This is the last record we have of her. We don't find people saying, oh, Mary, let me pray to you because you are the mother of Jesus. No, we don't find that. You also find the brothers of Jesus. And if, if now, uh, depending on what translation you read, some, some translations translate the word brothers as cousins because they're trying to maintain the sacredness of Mary and Joseph and the Immaculate Conception. Again, I guess I'm coming back to some theological presuppositions over here that I don't buy into. But here you, in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, you have a description of the disciples of Jesus. Let me, let me jump there real quick. Mark 6, 3, and then uh, uh, down in verse 21 of Mark 3. Mark 6 and verse 3. Um, they're asking the questions, where did this man get his things? Uh, verse, uh, what's, what's this wisdom that he has been given, that he even does miracles? Here's verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? So there are four brothers listed there. Aren't his sisters here with us and some sisters? So Mary and Joseph had other children, you know, they did, you know, and they were brothers and or sisters of Jesus. And these brothers are mentioned in chapter three of that verse uh, of the Gospel of Mark, verse twenty-one. It reads this: 
when his, and this is fascinating too, when his family heard about this, I better back up verse 20. Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So the family was concerned. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Well, that would be interesting to their perception of Jesus that he was losing it. There was, he, he may have been, what, what are some nice phrases? He may have been one fry short of a happy meal. Uh, I, I would pick a phrase, any phrase that you want to use. They, but they had some reservations about him. Now, what's that all about? What, so here the brothers of Jesus are, are in. At that point in time, they probably scratched their heads a little bit about Jesus. Who is this person? You know, what, you know, but there are two things that the inclusion of the brothers of Jesus, at least in this portion, that tell me. First of this, first is this. Proximity to Jesus doesn't guarantee faith. So don't take anything for granted. Just because Jesus was your brother doesn't give you an inside track. Being close to Jesus in geographic proximity, even familial, didn't guarantee any inside track or any faith. It took a while, I believe, for these followers of Jesus, his brothers, to even begin to embrace that, what that meant. And the other thing that strikes me about this is that those who today are unbelievers may come to Christ tomorrow. And that's one I like to keep in mind. Those who are unbelievers today may come to Christ tomorrow, so don't ever give up on your loved ones. Um, I've got family, you've got family, and sometimes the, the, the intensity of their faith is anemic. And you begin to wonder, you know, do they really get it? Do they really understand? Um, and I realize that ultimately God is the one who sorts all that out. And, and it's not my job to be saying, yeah, that person's going to go to heaven because they always go to church or they read their Bible or they talk about faith. There may be people who don't always do all of those kinds of things and may have been able to come to a point where they said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Whatever that looks like, you you entrust that to God's care. Um, middle of last month, uh, my older sister passed away. And uh, good person, caring person, Loved her family. Didn't go to church much. But there were but there were things about her that were indicators that there was something deeper in her heart. Um, when she would she dialogued with me on one or two occasions on, on issues of faith, and and also to some of my family members, and she said, you know. I, I've, I've made my peace with God. I don't know what that all involves, but I have to trust that kind of thing to a loving father who knows the beginning from the end and knows how it all gets worked out. 
And uh, and for some of us, that's that maybe that maybe our, our our slender hope there. But don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. Be Churchillian. Never, never give up. We just come through D-Day, you know. Keep it on going. Keep on, but just continue to persist along the way. Now, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble if 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 we burn the food downstairs. Okay, so we're going to deal with it. So, but here here here's what here's. Let me set it up for next Sunday. Oh, uh, or it's either next Sunday or the Sunday after that, because I may preach a Father's Day sermon. Uh, I'm still I'm still on the fence. I gave I, I need to be an equal opportunity preacher. So if I hammered on the gals, I need to hammer on the guys. So next week's Father's Day, so maybe I'll go there. But if not, the following week, I want to talk about the characterization of prayer. And let me give it to you real quick. I'll give it to you real quick, and then we'll just go back and we'll dig deep. They all joined together constantly in prayer. They joined together constantly in prayer. Wow. What a description. What a testimony. What a characterization of a church. They all joined together constantly in prayer. I'll give you the three words that we're going to get to. It was unanimous prayer. It was harmonious prayer. And beyond that, it was continuous prayer. Now we're going to come back. I'm going to have to drill down on those. But that can be part of it. So, Father, today we've gathered together uh, to dig into your word. And we're grateful for the promise of your coming. We don't know when. We don't have all the times and charts and plans filled out. But we know now is our salvation nearer than when it first started. And we look forward to that day when you will come and set all things right. And you will receive all glory and honor and praise and power. We ask that you might meet us and minister to us. We've entered to worship. We exit to serve. We'll enjoy fellowship and food that's been prepared. We ask you to strengthen and nourish our bodies by that and bless that food and the hands that have prepared it. We pray that you go before us now. Let us serve you, serve those about us, and be watching, be watching for your work and your return. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen.